Today is Wednesday, January the 4th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. The New York State Right to Repair Law is a nothing burger. At the end of the year, New York Governor Kathy Hochul signed the Right to Repair Bill. I receive email from people celebrating the enactment of the bill. The mainstream media headlines call this as a first in the nation, and it would be a model for all other states. After a more careful reading, going past the headlines, the details revealed a nothing burger law. The devil is in the details. The bill was passed by both houses of the New York legislature in June of last year, and the state assembly and state senate voted overwhelmingly a veto-proof bill. If she vetoed the bill, it would have been overridden by the legislature. If there's no action on the passed bill in 10 days by the governor, it goes into law. This right-to-repair bill goes back to June of last year. There was no action by the governor because she technically, quote-unquote, did not receive the bill for whatever the reasons may be. What went under the radar is the bill was signed by the governor, but was modified at the last minute with amendments at the end of the year last year that effectively rendered the bill a useless piece of action. The law is functionally toothless. The last-minute concessions lessen the impact it will have is an understatement. Last-minute concessions made the law only apply to new consumer products sold after July 1st. Almost seven months after the state legislature overwhelmingly passed a right-to-repair bill, New York Governor Kathy Hochul has signed it into law. But Kathy Hochul only greenlit the bill after the legislature agreed to some changes. Representatives from Microsoft and Apple pressed the Hochul office for changes as well as industry association TechNet, which represents many notable tech companies, including Amazon, Google, Dell, and HP. Critics say the amendments weaken the law's effectiveness. The bill's revised language excludes enterprise electronics like devices used in schools and hospitals, home appliances, motor vehicles, medical devices, and off-road equipment were also previously exempted. Last-minute concessions weaken the rules which will only apply to new consumer products sold after July 1st. Hochul wrote in a memo that the legislation, as it was originally drafted, included technical issues that could put safety and security at risk, as well as heighten the risk of injury from physical repair projects. The governor said the modifications addressed these issues, but critics say the amendments will weaken the law's effectiveness. This legislation would enhance consumer options in the repair markets by granting them greater access to the parts, tools, and documents needed for repairs, Hoko wrote encouraging consumers to maximize the lifespan of their device through repairs is a laudable goal to save money and reduce electronic waste. The change stripped out the bill's requirement for original equipment manufacturers, called OEMs, to provide to the public any passwords, security codes, or materials to override security features. OEMs will also be able to bundle assemblies of parts instead of just a specific component actually needed for a do-it-yourself repair if the risk or improper insulation heightens the risk of injury. The rules will only apply to devices that are originally built and used or sold in New York for the first time after July 1st. There's also an exemption for digital products that are 
the subject of business to business or business to government sales and that otherwise are not offered for sale by retailers. Whatever aims the right to repair bill had when first proposed have been weakened, drastically weakened. Public interest research groups, the PRIG, a collective of consumer rights organizations, said in a statement, such changes could limit the benefits for school computers and most products currently in use. It continued, the bill now excludes certain smartphone circuit boards from parts the manufacturers are required to sell and require repair shops to post unwieldy warranty language. Kathy Holko's assertion that the changes were necessary to include protection from physical harm and security risk without specifics just doesn't pass muster at all. The right to repair movement has picked up steam over the last couple of years ahead of expected legislation coming into force companies such as Google, Apple, Samsung, and Valve started providing repair manuals and selling parts for some of their products. Eufy, the company Eufy, E-U-F-Y, publicly acknowledges some parts of its no-cloud controversy. Eufy is part of Anchor Innovations, one of the leading consumer electronics brands in America. Eufy connect devices and appliance to work seamlessly together in the smart home. Eufy positioned its security cameras as prioritizing local storage and no clouds. The inference is a more secure product. The company has issued a statement in response to recent findings by security researchers and tech news sites. In response to recent security claims against Eufy security, they are taking a new approach now to how they describe home security. The company writes, The product is designed to operate locally and wherever possible to avoid cloud servers. Video footage, facial recognition, and identity biometrics are managed on devices, not the cloud. Hey, the translation is, it does operate in the cloud. This comes after questions have been raised in the past weeks about Eufy's cloud policies. A British security researcher found in late October that phone alerts sent from Eufy were stored on a cloud server, seemingly unencrypted, with face identification data included. Another firm at that time quickly summarized two years of findings on Eufy security, noting similar unencrypted file transfers. At that time, Eufy acknowledged using cloud servers to store thumbnail images and that it would improve its setup language so customers who wanted mobile alerts knew this. The company didn't address other claims from security analysts, including that live video streams that could be accessed through VLC media player with the right URL, one whose encryption scheme could potentially be brute force. Tech site The Verge, working with a researcher, confirmed that a user not logged into Eufy account could watch a camera stream, giving the right URL. Getting that URL required a serial number encoded in Base64, a Unix timestamp, and a seemingly non-validated token and four-digit hex value. After weeks of silence, Eufy has finally addressed some of the public's findings about its secured cameras. We live in a connected world, so for the most part it should come as no surprise that our data is being shared across networks and some of our personal data is being harvested by companies and apps that we use every day. But when the company promises that it will never store personal data and it happens to do so, that's a whole other story. It becomes even worse when someone other than that company shares the news, bringing the company's integrity into question. Unfortunately, Eufy customers were faced with this same nightmare towards the end of November when it was revealed that the company was in fact storing images from its cameras on remote servers. Since the explosive report by Paul Moore, a security researcher, multiple outlets have tried getting a hold of Eufy for an explanation. 
Instead of communicating with the public, it began updating its website, rewriting and updating some of its privacy policies. This, of course, raised some eyebrows and additional red flags about the company. A few weeks removed from the incident, Yuffie has now issued a statement on the subject, which it posted to its website. The company explains that the things it is doing are unique, and since that is the case, there are expected challenges that will arise. It acknowledges that there have been several reports about its products and that it has been doing its own research. While the company understands that urgency is key, it's needed to get all the facts in order to better inform customers. When a company touts a product as locally operated and separate from the cloud, this implies a more secured product. But when it modifies its specs that some aspects of the cloud is part of the operation of the product, the consumer has lost trust in the company. It's hard to tell how much this incident has had on the company. While it's fairly widespread in the tech community, it's unknown whether this problem has compromised its integrity with consumers. Although there are some websites that are suggesting Eufy can't be trusted, there are others that are gladly promoting Eufy products. If one thing is for sure, Eufy is definitely unnoticed. James Webb Space Telescope shows that the Big Bang didn't happen. James Webb Space Telescope shows Big Bang didn't happen? New data coming back from the telescope were inspiring panic among astronomers. Webb was expected to merely confirm the standard model of the universe, but its images are surprisingly smooth, surprisingly small, and surprisingly old. The big news for 2022 is a much better look at exoplanets, the moons of our solar system, and a variety of unusual stellar formations. Although we didn't usually hear of it, there's been dissatisfaction with the standard model, which begins with the Big Bang. Ever since it was first proposed by George Lemaitre nearly a century ago, but no one expected the James Webb Space Telescope to contribute to the debate. The new James Webb Space Telescope images of the cosmos are beautifully awe-inspiring, but to most professional astronomers and cosmologists, they are also extremely surprising, not at all what was predicted by theory. In the flood of technical astronomical paper published online since July 12th, the authors report again and again that the images show surprisingly many galaxies, galaxies that are surprisingly smooth, surprisingly small, and surprisingly old. Lots of surprises. What theories, prediction, are the James Webb Space Telescope images contradicting? The hypothesis is that the James Webb Space Telescope images are blatantly and repeatedly contradicting the Big Bang hypothesis that the universe began 14 billion years ago in an incredibly hot, dense state and has been expanding ever since. Since that hypothesis has been defended for decades as unquestionable truth by the vast majority of cosmological theorists, the new data is causing these theorists now to panic. The Big Bang theory crucially depends on the inflation hypothesis that at the outset of the universe expanded many orders of magnitude faster than the speed of light. But experiments have failed to prove evidence of cosmic inflation, and since the theory's inception has been beset by deep puzzles. Now one of its founders, Paul Steinhardt, has denounced the theory as mistaken and scientifically meaningless. Do we have to give up the theory of cosmic inflation and seek a radical alternative? Might alternative theories like the Big Bounce or abandoning the speed of light provide a solution? Or are such alternatives merely sticking plasters to avoid the more radical conclusion that it is time to give up on the Big Bang altogether. The current thinking is that Big Bang nucleosynthesis era produced 75% hydrogen and 25% helium by weight and a smattering of lithium, but not much else. Then after 300,000 years, 
the universe cooled down enough to produce atoms and gravitational attraction slowly, slowly built up stars. The early ones were big enough to explode and the shock waves sent through the hydrogen gas caused pockets to form that began star making in earnest. But it still took 500 million years to get enough stars for a galaxy. Now the earlier a galaxy forms, the further back in time and further away it is from astronomers today, and the further away it is, the faster it is moving away from us. This movement causes the light to be redshifted. So robust is this relationship that astronomers may replace time with redshift. But the Hubble Space Telescope could only see visible light, and those early galaxies were so redshifted they were only visible in the infrared, which is where the James Webb Telescope shines. So one of the goals of the James Webb Telescope was to see the earliest galaxies, and indeed, they're seeing a lot. So what does this mean for the standard model? The James Webb sees lots of redshifted galaxies from the early universe. Could the universe have already existed? The problem is, if the universe had existed for an infinite amount of time, everything that could possibly happen must already have happened an infinite number of times, including that we don't exist and never did. But we know we do exist. Playing with infinity quickly results in absurdity. To do science, we must accept that some events are real and not mutually contradictory, so we can assume that the universe got started, but we are a little less sure just how now that happened. Did physicists open a portal to extra time dimension as claimed? That's the way the story reads in Scientific American. Beware the pig butchering crypto scam. The FBI says America has a big pig butchering problem. It's costing victims millions of dollars. We're not talking about what's going on at farms. We're talking about cryptocurrency investment scam that is sweeping the country. The term pig butchering refers to an unsuspecting victim, the pig, being tricked by scammers into forking over money for a promised high rate of return. Scammers fatten up the pig by getting the victims to think that they're investing in something and getting them to move money into cryptocurrency. Once criminals fatten up their victims' digital wallets, they steal the money. Pig butchering operations typically begin with a rudimentary approach. Scammers blast out millions of unsolicited messages each day to unsuspecting victims via text messages and social media often with an innocuous note like, Hi, how are you? The scammer operating under false identity builds a relationship with the victim, sometimes over just a few weeks, before suggesting the victim invest in cryptocurrency. One technique involves assuring a victim that the scammer has made significant profits in cryptocurrency, persuading the victim they shouldn't miss out on the benefits of cryptocurrency investments. Those who fall for the scam are coaxed into sending more and more money and even provided with fictitious financial statements that make it appear their investments have made a substantial return. This is where the fattening up of the pig comes in. Eventually, you become a little suspicious. You try contacting the person that contacted you online and ask for your money back. But that person has ghosted you. The holiday season is an especially lucrative time for scammers as they often prey on people who may be feeling lonely. While the initial approach is uncomplicated, the actual scamming typically operates overseas, including Cambodia and China, involving highly sophisticated methods. They've been trained by psychologists to try to figure out the best way to manipulate people. You're dealing with people that are going to use different psychological techniques to make you vulnerable and to get you interested in parting with your money. Experts say basic awareness and diligence are key to guarding against online predators. Be very careful when you go on social media and dating apps and somebody starts developing a relationship with you and wants you to start investing. Don't get butchered. As shoppers spend billions online this holiday season, the FBI says it has also seen a rise in scams 
involving the mega retailer Amazon. Online criminal scams are only limited by their imagination and they have an impeccable sense of timing. In one type of scam, somebody calls you and purports to be from Amazon or another wholesaler distributor and they say there's a problem with your credit card. The scammer then asks for a new credit card number. Another variation of the Amazon scam involves a criminal calling a potential victim and indicating a suspicious purchase has been flagged on the user's account, which has resulted in the suspension of purchasing privileges. The victim is then asked to make a payment via credit card right then to reinstate the account. Sometimes they'll even threaten to report you to law enforcement regarding your purchase. Do not fall for this scam. Amazon's security team advises consumers that the company would never ask a customer for personal information and users should not respond to emails requesting account data or personally identifiable details. The company said in a statement that it has worked to remove thousands of online phishing website and phone numbers associated with impersonation scams and has referred suspected scammers to law enforcement agencies worldwide. Scammers who attempt to impersonate Amazon put consumers at risk, said Amazon Vice President of Selling Partner Services. Although these scams take place outside of our store, we will continue to invest in protecting consumers and educating the public on how to avoid scams. The FBI says other types of scams on the rise this holiday season are largely aimed at defrauding senior citizens. Scammers tend to focus on the elderly because they know they're trusting and they know older Americans usually have more money. In so-called sweepstakes scams, victims are contacted and congratulated for winning a sweepstake prize, but they are told they must first send money to cover taxes and processing fees that can be exorbitant. Legitimate sweepstakes will not do that. They will not make you pay in advance to collect your money. There were approximately 60 fake sweepstakes victims in New Mexico alone last year, whose collective losses totaled $1 million. The FBI suggests people check in with elderly relatives and friends about their online habits and whether they may have been targeted by cyber criminals. If somebody has approached them and wants to be their friend and develop a relationship, ask questions. Big Tech's Dilemma with we, the users, are the product. Are cloud-based voice assistants doomed? That seems like an overly dramatic question to ask if you look at the current state of millions of users of Google Assistant, Amazon Alexa, and Apple's Siri. But we're not so sure about the future. Google and Amazon have backed away from their voice assistants recently, with Amazon firing a big chunk of the Alexa team due to its losing $10 billion a year. Google isn't quite at the fire stage, but it is reportedly less interested in supporting the assistant on third-party devices, which would be a crippling move given Google's extremely small hardware division. Everyone built these systems assuming a revenue stream would come later, but that revenue never came and it's starting to seem like the bubble is bursting. The problem with all these big tech voice services is that they don't have a way to generate ongoing revenue. They don't really have a way to show ads, and nobody wants another subscription service. They do generate an ongoing cost, though, due to the server time needed to process all that voice communication. Google and Amazon exasperated the problem by selling their voice hardware at cost in an attempt to win the voice assistant rush, while hoping an additional revenue stream would come later. Apple launched a high-end Siri speaker, the HomePod, in 2018 at a then-shocking $350 price tag. But in retrospect, that looks a lot more sustainable than whatever Amazon and Google were doing. Amazon is burning billions on Alexa because voice assistants need massive infrastructure but can't be monetized. Google Cloud is $700 million in the red as of last earnings and heading south to the state of madness. These are mature products in saturated markets. 
The big confounding factor is reputation. Take Alexa, which, as has been reported, is overwhelmingly used for a few simple tasks, playing music, setting timers, doing quick queries, switching lights. Shopping and advertising? Not so much. The issue for Amazon over these few popular use cases is that they are very popular. For some demographics among the elderly and disabled, they are now part of their daily life. Millions more are habituated with Alexa just being quietly useful when hands are full or pulling up a calculator app is just too much hassle. Amazon's model was to sell the hardware at or below cost and make the revenue from content and services. It's a perfectly good model if those services and content are as engaging as video games or user data can be folded into ad targeting. None of this is true for Alexa, and it never will be. But if Amazon cuts and runs, hundreds of millions of users have had an intimate part of their life ripped out. Furthermore, they considered paid for when they bought the gadget in the first place. How badly does Amazon want not to do that? It costs billions. It can't keep paying, but it can't just let it go. Google is an even worse position, not from the amount of red ink currently bleeding from its cloud division, but because of its room to maneuver is far less. There are around 4 billion email accounts in the world, and around 1.8 billion of those are Gmail. When you run a service for that many users, they run you. Forget smart speakers. The ultimate digital assistant is email. You can't get more intimately entwined with users' digital life than that. As well as business and personal correspondence, email is the primary management interface for identity on other services. The major personal archive, the butler of daily life, losing access to your primary email account is beyond traumatic. Google is notably, however, brutal in pulling the plug on popular services it considers no longer interesting. But surely Gmail would be impossible to shut down. And it must be profitable with all those users, right? It is very far from clear that it is. Google isn't saying. Gmail, like G Workspace and the whole bouquet of user and business application services, is reported as part of the Google Cloud, which is losing a lot of money now and perhaps a lot more next year. There are subscription models and a little advertising, which will be making some money. Clearly, that's not enough. Advertising within Gmail is very low-key and easy to avoid altogether, and Google is very clear that it doesn't monetize your email content. We do not scan or read your Gmail messages to show you ads, as what Google has been saying. Google has played fast and loose about how it uses data, but if it cheated here, it would be beyond catastrophic. If Google isn't making any money from you on Gmail, and there are billions like you, the numbers can explode in no time. Even if the company's only losing a cent a day per free user, that's $3.5 billion a year for a billion users. It could be a lot more with workspace business subscriptions starting at $0.20 cents per day and doesn't offer much more than free. Disentangling what each component costs is impossible from outside, probably even within Google. But there's a tight rope here, and a fork could be very hard indeed. Google couldn't kill Gmail, but Gmail could kill Google. You haven't failed until you fail at scale. One traditional way out of a corner while saving face is to drop the service. Amazon could drop Alexa off to a third party for lots of someone else's money in the way many untenable tech acquisitions are used as debt management vehicles. When the system does die or degrade, Amazon could be far from the wreckage. That's nearly impossible for Google. The regulatory ramifications and user pushback from selling 1.8 billion active email accounts would be immeasurable. Will Gmail fail? Google is still immensely wealthy and can put off hard decisions for a while. Next year is going to be very hard, quarter by quarter, and the conversation may look very different in 2024. 
But while Amazon can and almost certainly will find a way out of Alexa, Gmail matters incomparably more to incomparably more people. The old adage that if you don't pay, you are the product. However, it cuts both ways. In this case, with Amazon and Google, they have strategically outfoxed themselves. If or when Amazon and Google decide to cut their losses, as we the users come with a hell of a price tag, do you have a backup plan? Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where I explain how IT and the workplace need to continue forward, how they need to work together, how they need to get past whatever issues they may have, because it's all better for the company. Sounds like I'm going in one direction and I'm not really going there. But I, I mean, I guess I am in a way. One of the things that I actually enjoy about the company that I'm working for right now, and I don't talk typically about the about my day job whenever I'm here on the radio, but sometimes some of these things do blur together. And the company is preparing for a number of different things, and in their preparations, they're planning for greater IT involvement. And doing some, uh, doing some of the things that when, uh, when they get the chance to go forward and do amazing things with IT. There's this old, uh, old adage that comes from advertising. And I don't know if it comes from radio or if, if it comes from, you know, newsprint uh, way back in the day. But it talks about in the good times... You want to advertise. In the bad times, you have to. Oh, it's so important. And I want you to think about that. In the good times, they want to sell you, whoever it is, they want to sell you mattresses. They want to sell you furniture. They want to sell you computers. They want to sell you cars. They want to sell you whatever it is that's out there. They're looking to sell it to you. But in the bad times... If there's a little bit of a downturn in uh, in our economy, it's no longer you want to advertise. You have to advertise. You cannot stop advertising. So now this same thing actually applies to information technology. And it's for similar reasons. In the good times, you want to leverage information technology. You want to install the new software. You want to make sure you're getting new servers. You want to make sure that you are keeping up with your competitors. You want to make sure that you are, uh, you're going through and you're developing the proper statistical analysis. You're developing the proper different reporting and different information uh, flow that's, uh, that's going to make you better against your competitor and this is again in the good times in the bad times it becomes even more important because you have to be able to leverage every single little bit of information there every single little statistic you have to look and say all right we're not serving our customers well here we're not developing enough profit here do we eliminate this particular product because it doesn't make any money do we put more energy and focus into developing this product because it's our high money maker in the good times you just throw money at it and it, it just works out in the bad times you have to focus in all of these areas there's a, a thing called exception reporting i love doing exception reporting and during the bad times is when you need to do this exception reporting. You need to find out those little areas where, yes, it, it, it seems small, but all of those small things just add up. So you need information technology in the good times. You want it in the good times. You need it in the bad times. And yes, the, you know, the economy predictions lately have not been good. So, yes, there are companies out there that are moving forward and they're saying this is the time when we're going to increase our IT budget. 
Yes, the company is struggling. The company is having some issues. And you would think, oh, let's lay off people. And there are people that that look beyond that. They go, yeah, you know what? Let's get rid of, you know, IT. They're a cost center. Yeah, that's the worst thing to do. IT is what is going to separate your IT department. Is what's going to separate you from the others. It's what's going to separate you and make you different. It's going to differentiate you from all of the other companies. And that's so important all the time. This is a cautionary tale for everybody. This is you know something that you need to be aware of. I've been at companies which have dismissed IT. Yeah, we don't need it. You, you guys are just, you're just dragging the company down. You make un, uh, unrealistic expectations of what we need to be doing. And no, that isn't the case. You need everybody out there. You need to remember that IT got us where we are. Your improvements over the course of the last 20, 30, even 40 years are all based in IT. The ability for us to communicate and send information out to the client. All of the information that we're sending out. All of the different little shortcuts that you've taken that have been enabled by IT. All of the different developments that have come along because you guys have done research utilizing IT. All of the different programs that are put into place, the MRPs, the ERPs, all of these different planning software packages that have come into place, whether we're talking about Kanban or, uh, you know, the Kanban cards that, that are moving us forward, or we're talking about, yes, simply sharing information back and forth between each other at the company. All of this have come through IT, through information technology, that little nerd sitting in the corner sipping his Red Bull. Be nice to him. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. The growth in the size of your video files. Gone are the simple days of moving pictures and practical effects. These days, the videos are more sophisticated with computer-generated special effects and high-resolution images. Each layer of new technology adds to the file size, which can make both downloading for at-home viewing and the process of creating the project more complicated than ever before. Video file size depends on the video quality, a standard definition that's called SD video that you download to your device for streaming tends to be between 1 gigabyte and 2 gigabytes, while high-definition videos are twice that, ranging from 2 to 4 gigabytes. The size of video files is only increasing. While HD videos are large, a 4K video is about four times the resolution of a standard HD and requires four times as much storage. Just two to three minutes of uncompressed 4K film or the length of a video trailer can be up to 500 gigabytes. And where 8K video files were once unimaginably large, 12K is now looming on the horizon with emerging tools that capture footage with even more detail. There are many factors that determine the final size of a video. These include video length. The shorter the video duration, the smaller the video size is likely to be. Then we have resolution, also referred to as pixel size. Resolution is technically the number of pixels per unit of area, but ultimately refers to the number of pixels arranged horizontally and vertically on a monitor. The number of pixels impacts video quality, which then impacts video file size. The higher your film quality, the more pixels make up the image. The larger the file size, the video frame rate will also play a role in the resolution. Then we have format. The format of a video plays the biggest role in its quality and eventual file size, and certain broadcasters or streaming services have different minimum standards for delivery. Formats range from consumer-friendly to professional-grade, with others geared towards content creators of all levels. 
For example, highly compressed MP4 or MKV file types are typically geared towards the end consumer media. Format is made up of two components, both of which guide your file size. Codec. This refers to how your files are encoded, compression for storage or sending, and then decompressed for playback and editing. It can be either computer code or hardware. The codec that is most used on the web is currently H.264. Then you have containers. It may help to think of container as the file type, for example, .mov or .mp4. This is a complete bundle of all your files, audio, visual, etc., together as one. The container will also include metadata, such as author, frame rate, dates, and overall file information. Frame rates are also called frames per second, and usually shortened to FPS. This is the rate at which back-to-back -back images, called frames, appear in a display and form moving imagery. Video content that we consume daily isn't actually moving. Instead, all videos are made up of images that play one after the other. If a video is shot at 24 frames per second, this means that 24 individual frames are played back in a second. While the standard for consumer video is 30 frames per second, the FPS standard rate varies across mediums depending on multiple other factors. The continuing introduction of new and improved features built into the smartphones are mostly in the area of photographs and videos. Striving for the best technically produced media also means the increase in file storage. You may find that the intended and primary target audience of your created media need not to be shot at the highest possible quality. The continual growth in video file size parallels the growing concern about how to manage these extra-large files without losing quality or data. Large file sizes typically results in extra processing requirements, including more storage space on memory cards or hard drives and longer processing times to save, copy, and transfer video files. Getting the best quality possible can come with trade-off. Is it always needed? Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. and It's time to play 2023 Skidoo! Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I will tell you that you, you sometimes... <laughs> Throw me off completely. <laughs> uh, all right. So so here we are. Uh, Happy New Year, anybody. Yes. <laughs> so so let me ask you, Marty. Um, I, I, everybody knows that, okay, we, we went through Thanksgiving. We went through Christmas. Everybody stuffed themselves. They went through all of the different things, and it, it sounds counterintuitive to start talking kitchen, but I know everybody's now thinking about oh look the kitchen's uh, uh, fine i mean we, res we'll, go the kitchen, we'll go through the kitchen in 30 seconds okay it's not feast time it's little snack time exactly. little yeah yeah time. yeah yeah if if you don't have the gear to make that easy then you're working harder than you need to on a holiday when you just want to uh, imbibe <laughs> I <don't, laughs> I, okay I don't, care, I don't care if it's tap water or bottled whatever your choice of beverage is sure you've got to make time for that so for next year or for next week or for tomorrow get yourself some of the appliances and make it easy like uh the countertop uh superheated steam ovens it's not wet inside like you think it's a great source of heat it makes things wonderfully we make salmon on ours all the time okay Take a look at a Pizzelle maker. Pizzelles are fancy little things that you can put powdered sugar on, put them in a tin, and, and give them away to friends like a gift. And it's Pizzelle. Okay. Okay. Powdered Pizzelle sugar. Maker. So it's a, so it's a, so it's a dessert of some kind. Okay. Yeah, it's a it, it's it, it's a sweet thing. You know, you want to make your own chocolates? Sure, you do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, there, uh, there are all kinds of appliances. Have a run through what's there. Decide what you want and need, and you're going to not just use once and have to find a place to store. 
you know, it, it, it's about that stuff. But 2023 Skidoo isn't just about your kitchen. Okay. 2023 Skidoo is about changing up the things that have been such a pain in the backside all last year. Okay. You know, 2022 right. had a lot going against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not even counting Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so you're done with masks most of the places, right? Isn't that true? What are you going to do with those extra masks? Hint, hint. Don't get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I agreed. Yeah, I mean, we're we're. You never know when they're going to be brought back again, or who knows? By you know, between now and when we when we're recording this and when this airs, you know, twenty well, I, minutes, I, it could all change again. Yeah. It, it could indeed. And uh, here's a message for the West Coast: Hachu. So, <laughs> uh, we also want to take a look at how work has changed. For example, mm-hmm. do you have to wear socks to get there? <laughs> <laughs> I choose to wear socks to work. Many yes. people, so many people working from home and looking like it. You know, <laughs> you want yeah. to describe the scene of my environs? Okay. Uh, it's uh, You've got a bunch of exposed two-by-fours. It looks like, uh, I, I, I know from past experience, it's in your basement, you've got some level of um, uh, insulation that's put up around you. Uh, and, uh, yes, you've got cold cement floor. So I imagine you're not wearing socks. Uh, oh, socks I, alone. No, socks and shoes and sometimes hot coals, like the one you gave me for Christmas. <laughs> How how did we get back to that? (laughs) (laughs) The point of 2023 Skidoo is to get rid of the stuff that's been so hateful in 2022 and find something better to go there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For example, if you grow that full beard just to keep your face warm, Mm -hmm, that's not not the reason you grew it. You're hiding something. Shave, doggone (laughs) it, just shave. Let people see that fleshy mass and learn to recognize it. Or when you do take it off, they won't know who the heck they're talking to. <laughs> now, if you really want to play a recognition game, mm-hmm. you have your entire face replaced by the initial that's on Zoom when you're on the conference call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just hide behind it. Yeah, I, I, I get it. Yeah. I, I know a number of people who do that <laughs> at the office. <laughs> yeah. Home. You've been sitting on what? A kitchen chair trying to make do at that that yeah, wherever the notebook that, yeah. is? Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, how many younger people are just sitting on one corner of their bed? Has a box spring given way yet or the main mattress? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you, you're saving on commuting, but there are investments being made elsewhere. So mm-hmm. find out what you really kind of would rather not have dealt with in 2022 and then 2023 skidoo everybody make it better for yourself how about you ben what are you gonna do well so i have already gone through and i've done a lot of uh you bought a new house a a lot of (laughs) well that yeah that was a that was a year and a half ago uh two years two years ago wow time flies yeah, time flies. I, yeah. Like the flies around the garbage cans outside the apartment where you used to be staying. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, you know, so I, I do have a I, I do have an upgraded chair. I've got a, a nice mouse keyboard uh, monitor. So, yeah, the, these are definite areas where you can improve. And when you do this, you make your work life a lot better, too. Yeah, absolutely. So. Look, I've said no to Samsung. I'm on Pixel phones now, Google Pixel. And I bought, and it was entirely unnecessary, Google Pixel charging stands. They do a good, fast job. They're easels, good, fast job of making the charge happen on a good schedule. Hey, buy what you enjoy. Exactly. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State Region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Tech Ed Connect, formerly the Westchester PC Users Group, meets Thursday, January the 5th, 2023. Meeting time is 7 p.m. 
online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, January the 6th. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, January the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. Phone number is 347-278-7320. New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, January the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, January the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is limac.org. Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, January the 26th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is bcug.com. The chill of winter has finally arrived. There are many less fortunate people who don't even have the basic necessity of a winter coat. You can donate winter coats to those in need at many of the donation sites near you. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of the gang, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, Marty Winston, and Rebecca Mercury, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week. And to all the listeners out there, season's greeting and Happy New Year.